podcast you're about to hear is true. The names have not been changed to protect the innocent, the guilty, or anyone else. If you're interested in the same type of discussion related to organized crime that you hear in the traditional media, stop listening now. If you're interested in thinking differently or learning something, turn up the volume on your computer, smartphone, or mobile device. This is The Racket Report. Here's Frank Morano. This is the Racket Report. I'm Frank Morano. This is the podcast that delves inside the world of organized crime. But we are indeed at an unprecedented moment in American history. There have been a lot of high-profile racketeering cases before. Racketeering cases involving people like Paul Castellano, John Gotti, many, many others. Some you've heard of, some you haven't, but never before has a racketeering case actually involved a former president of the United States and one of the leading candidates to be the next president of the United States. Now, just about the whole country thinks this is a real shame. The Trump supporters thinks is thinks this is a shame because you have the racketeering statute being used and abused not to lock up gangsters, but to lock up a political opponent of the current administration. The other half of the country that can't stand Donald Trump thinks it's a shame that we have a former president and possibly future president that may very well be a criminal. And I see what both people are saying, and I totally get it. However, I think this Trump racketeering indictment is an incredible opportunity because when it's just gangsters that are getting locked up, people really don't care about the RICO statute. They really don't care about the racketeering act. They really don't care about how it's being used and abused. I view this as an incredible opportunity for the RICO statute to be looked at by the whole public, for the whole country to look at what these racketeering acts supposedly are and whether this is consistent with the Constitution. I think this is an opportunity for the country to learn about how rotten the racketeering statute really is. A man that knows that all too well is somebody that I have a great deal of admiration for. uh, for. He is somebody that is an incredible spokesperson for his city. He's become so associated with the city that he led that it's almost become sort of a symbiotic relationship. He's a man who, as an attorney, has represented some of the biggest underworld names in history, including Tony the Ant Spilatro, Meyer Lansky, Lefty Rosenthal and Nikki Scarfo, and he is probably the only man who might be able to drink more Bombay Sapphire martinis at one sitting than I can. Uh, by now, you've probably guessed I am speaking of Oscar Goodman, mob lawyer turned mayor of Las Vegas, turned first man. He's also a best-selling author whose book, Being Oscar, From Mob Lawyer to Mayor of Las Vegas, is required reading. Mr. Mayor, it is always a treat to talk with you. Thanks for joining me. Frank, I, I love when we have these conversations because your energy is uh, so uh, contagious that uh, uh, you're, you're so darn smart and uh, you have your finger and your pulse on the right points. And uh, I think you're hitting it right on the button as far as the RICO statute is concerned, first of all. And you didn't ask, but most people, if you put a gun to their head and say, Tell us what a RICO statute is. They wouldn't know what you're talking about. Mm. Uh, it's a, uh, a abbreviation. I guess they call it, uh, what is it, an acronym? 
uh, uh, for, uh, and listen to this one, because uh, you have to be a genius. And even if you're a genius, you don't understand it. Racketeer influenced corrupt organization. Now, what that means, I think the only guy who knows what it means, at least to him, was the one who put it together back in 1970 for the federal government to use uh, as a hammer uh, in order to get people to uh, become witnesses against other people because of the draconian effect of the sentencing that goes along with the conviction. But to me, it makes no sense because it's being used. Who's a racketeer and what crimes of racketeering, as the public would understand it, is involved here? Uh, basically, uh, racketeers apply to some of my uh, 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 former clients who are allegedly mobsters. Uh, that's what it was supposed to be designed for. But now they use it against anybody uh, in conjunction with other defendants. So they would have horrendous uh, sentences uh, ready to impose if, uh, the other people uh, other than the one that they really want uh, uh, is going to uh, go to trial. And they try to flip these people by threatening them with these uh, ungodly sentencing uh, uh, that was presumably re uh, reserved for uh, the worst uh, of uh, uh, of the worst. And uh, it's been abused and reabused, and uh, it violates uh, just about every single concept imaginable. Um, I know I'm talking too much, Frank, but no. I I, I, I was I was involved in the first RICO case, the first prosecution under RICO in the United States. It was United States versus Elliott. It took place in Macon, Georgia, of all places. And uh, uh, nobody understood what it was about, including the judge. Uh, the prosecutor certainly didn't understand what it was about, but it was used as a hammer to get everybody other than the target that the government was after. Uh, uh, to uh, uh, plead uh, on the condition that they uh, would be subjected to the, as I said, the draconian, uh, unbelievably long sentences that can be imposed for a RICO. And um, uh, after that, I, I also had a case in Philadelphia where I was representing Philip Leonetti, and we had won a very difficult murder case back there uh, and uh, in the state court system. And then we won a very, very difficult uh, a drug case back there, although it wasn't about drugs. It was about extortion. The government didn't even know what they were talking about. And we got a not guilty. And then the, before we knew it, uh, my client and the others in the case uh, were all hit with a RICO case. And guess what two predicate acts, which are necessary under RICO, were used? Uh, the murder of which they were acquitted and the drug case. Uh, of which they were acquitted. And I said to myself, what happened to double jeopardy? Uh, you know, uh, that's uh, it's such a good point. And I want to follow up on that because w I don't think people have any understanding of what you just said and how that's true, meaning you can be charged in state court for a specific crime, acquitted, and then brought up um, and uh, on those same charges in federal court when they attach RICO to it and then be sentenced to 20 years in prison. And I know people that that's actually happened to. But Oscar, let me take a step back for people that may not be aware of your history and 
why you're an authority on this. You put that moniker of mob lawyer on the on the cover of your book, from mob lawyer to mayor of Las Vegas. A lot of criminal defense attorneys that I've spoken to over the years, they sort of bristle at that description. They don't like the term mob lawyer. You seem to have embraced that moniker with pride. How come? Well, Frank, uh, as you know, I don't really care about what other people think. And uh, all I know is that uh, I represented alleged mobsters, reputed mobsters. Uh, They weren't mobsters until they were convicted, as far as I was concerned. And uh, fortunately, I was a lucky fellow and uh, was able to get uh, a lot of acquittal for these alleged uh, mobsters. Uh, And uh, it dawned on me that uh, these fellows that I was representing and ladies, and they had the wherewithal, the economic wherewithal, to hire any lawyer in the country that they wanted to. And yet they came to me. And um, the way I tried my cases uh, appealed to them because I would rarely uh, let them take the witness stand unless they absolutely insisted. Um, and uh, I would try the government for its misconduct, for its overreaching. And... Um, Uh, I was keeping the system honest from my perspective and making sure that the Constitution of the United States wasn't a mere technicality, but was the backbone of which our system is uh, based. And the juries, uh, they agreed with me most of the time, fortunately for my clients and myself. And uh, when they called me a mob lawyer, uh, I said to myself, look who's calling me a mob lawyer, Uh, some uh, uh, stupid a guy in, in the in the press room of a, a local newspaper or uh, in a magazine, a mob lawyer, and uh, I wore it as a a badge, a badge of uh, a pride uh, rather than as a uh, demeaning way of describing me. And uh, I uh, I never had a problem with that. Never lost a night's sleep because what I was doing, I felt, was the Lord's work, keeping the system honest. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Handling legal matters is stressful. So let the law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. provide you with the insightful counsel you deserve. The law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. has successfully handled thousands of cases for 25 plus years. They focus on elder law and estate planning, but are equipped to navigate you through all stages of family law and divorce to real estate law and probate. The law offices of Frank Bruno. Call 718-418-5000 or visit them at frankbrunolaw.com. That's frankbrunolaw.com. Frank Bruno. He's your numero uno. A a lot of people may look at that, what you just said, and I obviously agree with it, but when they look at what you said and they say, look, look at these awful people that Oscar Goodman is keeping from serving life behind bars, people that have committed all these horrible crimes. Explain to folks why you had no moral compunction at all about keeping bad guys from going to prison if you were doing your job well. I wasn't a moralist. What I was, I was a defense lawyer who was protecting uh, everybody uh, from uh, uh, violations of the Constitution. I've represented federal judges and police officers who had problems. They said, 
Uh, we never dreamed that uh, the system was being abused. And I said, well, you're the ones who were abusing it. You were, <laughs> right? And yet when the, you're targeted, and then all of a sudden you become sensitive to the rights of others. And I always got a kick out of people saying, well, uh, he got uh, he got his client off because of a technicality. Is the Fourth Amendment a technicality? Is the Fourth Amendment of the United States Constitution, the Bill of Rights, a technicality? No, it's the thing that makes us different than other places where law enforcement can't go in and they can't willy-nilly violate a person's rights because they think that they've done something. There has to be probable cause. There has to be a magistrate who's impartial, making a determination on that. That's why the system is a wonderful system. And it takes a little bit of guts, I guess, to go, to go against the uh, the government. I, I never had a problem with it, but I was representing uh, Tony Spilatro, uh, who uh, was characterized by Joe uh, Pesci in the movie Casino. And uh, I showed him a copy of an indictment against him. And he says, my God, Oscar, it says the United States of America versus Anthony Spilatro. He says, that doesn't seem fair. I said, with me as your lawyer, Tony, it's going to be fair because I'm not going to let them get away with what they're trying to do uh, with you. Uh, the, uh, the FBI used to say he killed 27 people. Well, the truth of the matter is uh, he was never convicted of anything. He didn't spend one day in prison. Uh, he waited in jail one time for me to get through with another trial so I could get him bail. But all they did was say uh, he killed 27 people. How can you represent a guy like this? And I, I'm saying to them, wait a second, your job was to get people who killed 27 people or one person convicted and you haven't been able to do it. So who's doing their job right, buddy? And that's <laughs> the way I practiced law. And I liked it. I, I really enjoyed it because I was not a good winner. I uh, I uh, I crowed about my victories because uh, I've had prosecutors actually bring champagne into their offices in the courthouse, ready to have the celebration after they got a conviction, uh, accept their judge position as a reward for getting their conviction and ending up with egg all over their face and uh, uh, going out in shame and disgrace uh, because they weren't able to uh, get a conviction. It's easy uh, to have somebody indicted. They say you can indict a ham sandwich. Uh, all you have to do is go in front of a grand jury and they follow you like sheep and they follow the prosecution and do whatever the prosecution wants them to do. Uh, but uh, then you have to get into a courtroom. And then you're talking about 12 of your peers uh, sitting in judgment of you and not only of you as a defendant, but also of the government as the, uh, the prosecutor. And uh, then it becomes a more of an even fight. So, uh, it's a great system, in my opinion. I don't think there's a better system. I uh, uh, I, I just think that uh, juries ordinarily do the right thing, and uh, I've never had a problem. I, I start off this way, Frank. Uh, I asked the jury. I said, "What? What do you say?" And the, the listeners, uh, if they can listen to me this long, uh, I, I, I ask them the same question. Uh, God forbid you go home. And you see that your front door has been busted in and you walk into your home and you see that your uh, drawers have all been opened up and your personal effects, things that are very private to you have been strewn all over the floor. And you call up the police and you say, I was what? Now, you're a smart guy. 
right? What were you? I was robbed. Wrong. And you're a smart guy. You were burglarized. <laughs> Robbery is well, don't laugh because uh, there's a real distinction between the two. Robbery is taking something by force or threat of force, whereas burglary is entering with the intent to commit a felony. And there's usually a 15-year difference in the sentence that one receives for robbery than they do for burglary. And that's why uh, it takes somebody who's ready to uh, stand up and to fight the government when they overcharge or they charge wrongfully uh, a citizen, a citizen accused uh, in this country. And that's why it's great that uh, there are people who will stand up and defend other people to make sure that their rights are protected, because uh, those who ordinarily complain about it, when their rights are affected adversely, they're the first ones to cry foul. How does a nice Jewish boy from Philadelphia, the son of a prosecutor, no less, upstanding citizen, wouldn't even dream of jaywalking unless it was to get to a bar before closing time. How does someone like Oscar Goodman from Philadelphia become so associated with Las Vegas and become known as a mob lawyer? What what started you down that path, Oscar? Well, uh, I was going to University of Pennsylvania Law School. I had just gotten married, and uh, my beautiful wife was supporting me, and that bugged me to no end. And uh, I didn't particularly care for uh, law school. I, I loved college. It was like the Elysian Fields, and I was studying philosophy and uh, sociology, things that really interested me when the law school was uh, more concerned in those days with corporate law and agency and real property, which put me to sleep. And one day I went down to the, the district attorney in Philadelphia, who I did not know and just knocked on his door. And uh, interestingly, he uh, he saw me and I said to him, I said, Mr. Crumlish, I'm a student at Penn. I really would like a job as a clerk in your office while I'm going. To, you can't do that. I said, why, why can't I do it? He said, you can't go to an Ivy League law school and uh, uh, work while you're going there. You have to study. I said, well, the truth of the matter is, I may have to study, but uh, I'm going to flunk out because I've just lost all interest in the curriculum. I really have to keep my sanity, and that's more important than studying. And he said, well, walk down the hall. Arlen Specter, uh, who was an assistant district attorney at the time, had just gotten a conviction uh, against the first Teamster official in the United States. And um, he said, talk to Arlen. He may need an assistant now. Uh, we've promoted him to the appellate division. And I went down there, and Arlen was a very, very smart fellow. You may not like his politics, and you may not like his personality, but he was a smart fellow. And he said, look, he said, uh, I don't think you're making the right decision here, but if you want to give it a shot, I'll pay you a dollar an hour. You have to work a 40-hour week, and uh, I don't think you'll be able to do it. I said, just give me a shot. And I took the shot, and then... Uh, I got lucky. My life uh, has, I've always been a lucky fella. I, I've always uh, gotten the best of it as far as luck and, and the destiny is concerned. And a wealthy widow was killed in Philadelphia and the fellas who killed her took $300,000 from under her mattress wow. and came out to Las Vegas to launder it in the old sense of laundering money at the crap tables. And, uh, uh, the police who were arrested and these fellas came back to Philadelphia with a motion to suppress had been filed, and Arlen assigned me to work up their testimony before they went to court. And it was one of these horrible 
East Coast blustery nights and the Philadelphia City Hall was made out of stone and the wind was coming through it. We had a little something to eat after uh, we went over their testimony. And they said at the end of it, they said, what are you doing here? And, you know, Philadelphians were very provincial at the time. We had to get a courage up for weeks before we would take a ride to Atlantic City or to come to New York was almost heard of. 90 miles. Uh, you had to think about it for half a year before you took that trip. And I said, where else is there? They said to Las Vegas. So I went home that night. And I woke my dear wife up and I said, sweetheart, how would you like to go to the land of milk and honey? And she said, Oscar, she says, I love you more than life itself, but I'm not moving to Israel. And <laughs> with that, uh, we got on a, uh, a junket. In the old days, they used to have these uh, flights uh, from major East Coast cities out to Las Vegas where uh, the people on the plane played, uh, paid a, a minimal amount of money or were, or were treated to a hotel room and meals as long as they had a certain amount of a banking account. And my dad knew somebody who had these junkets, and my wife and myself flew out. And uh, Vegas was a town of 70,000 people at the time. It was 1964. And uh, I went up and down the streets in downtown Las Vegas, knocking on law offices, uh, doors. And I, I said, if you were a young fellow, would you stay in Philadelphia, where you have everything sort of made for you? Or would you come out and uh, really strike out on your own in Las Vegas? And to a person, they all said Las Vegas had tremendous future. And they were right. And uh, I followed uh, my instinct on that one. And we came out and didn't know a soul arrived in town with 87 bucks in our pocket. And uh, uh, fortunately, as a result of a lot of luck, uh, I was able to uh, develop a clientele that included some people who were considered to be reputed mobsters and got real lucky. I got involved with the first wiretap case under the Omnibus Crime Bill of 1964, and uh, I was fortunate to have my client severed, which means taken uh, out of the case while other people went to trial, and they had some of the finest lawyers in the country representing them, Edward Bennett Williams, Bill Hunley, down in Miami, and uh, my client uh, was uh, back home, having been severed out, and the lawyers down there said uh, to me, being uh, just really out of school, uh, green as could be, why don't you stay down here, help us? And I stayed, and uh, everybody uh, was convicted in the case, but my client was back in Vegas. They never retried him. And uh, everyone said, this kid from Vegas won the first wiretap case of the country. Uh, so from there, um, on December the 12th of 1970, there was a simultaneous raid. Uh, all over the country of people whose last names ended in vowels. Mm. And uh, uh, I was hired in 19 out of the 26 cases and was able by <laughs> happenstance uh, to have one client say, look, Oscar, I said, please, I'm studying. Don't bother me. He says, you got to see this. I said, please, let me just work. And I, and he says, no, there's something wrong here. So I said, what do you want? And he said, look at the signatures. Well, the signatures didn't match. And I was able to ascertain from that that the wiretap statute required that the attorney general or one of nine assistant attorney generals authorize it. And this was a signature purporting to be one of the nine assistants, but was actually the executive secretary of them. And I got all 19 of my cases dismissed. And from that point on, it was Katie bar the door and whatever somebody whose last name ended in the vowel. 
gotten problems around the country, I got the phone call. Uh, that's incredible. And uh, I know and that's, long, that's I, a long way to question frank but i love i love it please i I can't think of a better a more interesting a better storyteller and and i think if i'm not mistaken the attorney general at that time involved in those cases was john mitchell and long before john and mitchell who ended up uh, in prison himself based on one of these wire taps that was should have had a better lawyer (laughs) but it didn't matter no no look uh, with his wife martha she aggravated him so much i think he was looking forward to One of the first racketeering cases I ever covered, I saw it was really an eye opening experience for me because I saw the prosecutors do something that was blatantly uh, cheating. I think that's the only way that can that can be described. They knew how to cheat. They knew how to cheat. Uh, And so uh, what what occurred in this one case many years ago is the federal government had secretly recorded a defendant meeting with his attorney. And without their knowledge, blatant violation of every principle of the Bill of Rights. And then the the defendant was saying things to his attorney that were exculpatory, that proved he didn't commit the crimes that the government was claiming that he committed. And the government actually went so far after having secretly recorded this guy for hours, they actually, with a straight face, said to the judge that that recording should not be permitted and not be allowed into court. And I'll never forget what the defense attorney said to me when we broke for lunch after the government with a straight face made that motion. He said to me, did you see that? They're just as dishonest as we are. (laughs) uh, I thought it was such a telling thing. And I thought that was very much on display with what the government tried to do with you in one of your cases involving a Gambino captain by the name of Ricci, in that they actually tried to get you disqualified from cases in that even though you had not done anything wrong, what was your experience with the government and them trying to kind of go after you? Were you just too good at getting people out of jail? No, there. You know, it's really a shame that those kind of things happen. Uh, they've come to my office, uh, sending informants in, and actually sending uh, FBI agents in undercover capacities, uh, coming in pretending to be clients or uh, persons who would affect the client, and uh, and wanted me to advise them. And thank God, I had a little angel on my shoulder, and the angel said. You know, you can't do this and represent your client and talk to these people the way they want to talk to you. And uh, I always recommended that they get uh, independent counsel, somebody who could independently advise them. uh, So there wouldn't be the accusation that I was going to suborn perjury. And uh, 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 even after I did that, they uh, would call me up and they would say, that fellow was just in your office. He's not just an informant for us. He's actually an FBI agent. I said, you sent an FBI agent into my office? And they said, yes. And if anything happens to him, they say to me, now listen to this one. If anything happens to this FBI agent, uh, we're going to hold you responsible. I used an expletive then to tell them to go uh, F-bomb themselves and said, I'm not an insurance broker for the federal government, you can F-bomb yourself and walked out. And they tried to indict me, believe it or not, for obstruction of justice. Now, 
if I had sent them to a friend of mine, they would have said there was a conspiracy because conspiracy was like a drag that uh, they could uh, throw everybody into it and uh, claim that they jumped on the conspiratorial train and they were as guilty as the main person. Uh, but fortunately, I gave them the name of three of the finest and most ethical attorneys in Los Angeles. So they couldn't say that I had any kind of influence over them. And still they went to a grand jury and they tried to indict me. But, uh, uh, you know, if you fight them and you're on the right side, you're going to win. Because I'll tell you why. Uh, jurors are able to tell the difference. Jurors are very, very smart people. And uh, as a whole, it's a smart animal. A jury is a smart animal uh, that uh, knows uh, what's right and what's wrong. And if they look at a lawyer and they see that the lawyer is telling them the truth, and I never said my clients are good boys or good ladies. That wasn't what I was doing. I was saying how bad the government was. They had to make a choice. They made a choice. Uh, what is uh, more worthwhile for us to be a country uh, where you allow those who are in charge with enforcing the laws to violate the laws, to abuse their power, to abuse the Constitution, or to let somebody who you think may have done something wrong uh, uh, let them go? And I don't even think it's a close question. Uh, they, oh, I'm not saying I want every case. That would be a lie. But I'm telling you, most of the time, the jury said it's not worth it. We're not going to let this government get away with, uh, with with this kind of activity, even though we don't like Oscar's client, even though we think he did something wrong. Uh, we're not going to punish him. We're going to punish the government more. And uh, that's the way it works. And uh, my favorite story, and it's not that I just represented wealthy people, as the government would have you believe. I represented some people who weren't so wealthy. I represented a fella by the name of Manny Baker. I told this story uh, while Manny was still around, and Manny liked me to tell the story. Manny was a pure, uh, a, a poor African-American fella who wasn't the most law-abiding guy in the world. And he got in trouble, and uh, information uh, was given that he would be picking up somebody at Texarkana at the airport and giving them a substantial amount of money in return for controlled substances, and uh, there were three uh, officers who arrested him down there, and uh, they brought him back to Las Vegas, where uh, the uh, phone call took place, which set up this deal, and uh, the first officer gets on the witness stand. I, I invoke the exclusionary rule, which means you could ask that the witnesses who are about to testify have to be excluded from the courtroom. Uh, while uh, somebody else is testifying, so they don't copy each other's testimony. And this first redneck, he was a redneck cop from Texarkana. He was fat, he was ugly, and he gets on the stand, and he swore to God. And to me, that means a lot. You don't swear to God willy-nilly. He swore to God to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And he said, uh, well, we went up to Mr. Beck. Uh, I said to myself, they, they were calling Manny Mr. Baker. No one called, called Manny Mr. Baker in his life. Uh, uh, so I knew uh, they were up to something here. And we asked him uh, whether it was all right for him to step out of his car. And then he said, certainly. And he, uh, no way in the world has anybody spoken to Manny that way. And Manny, they said, got out of his car. And we said, would you mind giving us the key so we could open up your trunk? And 
Matty handed the key over. Matty would have swallowed the key before he would have handed it over to him. And they went into the trunk and they found a bag. Can we open this up, Mr. Baker? And he said, certainly. Well, that never could happen. And Matty's saying, they're lying, Mr. Goodman. They're lying. I said, Matty, you're a heroin dealer. You're a black heroin dealer. The judge isn't going to believe you saying that they're lying. These are our are, are big redneck fat cops. Well, next next uh, cop gets on the stand. Uh, same testimony, word for word. See, Mr. Cooper, they lie. They're lying. I said, Matty, you know, if you bother me much more, I'm going to walk away. I'm not going to represent you. I have to pay attention to what's happening here. But they're lying, Mr. Goodman. And I said, please, Matty. And the third one gets up, swears to God, same testimony, right down the pike. And Matty says, they're lying. They're lying, Mr. Goodman. And you know, uh, those people who were in the van, they, they saw it. I said, what are you talking about? He says, you know, uh, the pilot and the flight attendants, when they come off the plane, uh, they get in the van, they go to a motel to spend time overnight. I said, yeah. He said, well, they saw everything. I said, well, I, well why didn't you tell me this, Manny? He said, you wouldn't let me get a word in edgewise. So I, I went uh, up to the uh, the judge and I said, your honor, could I have a recess till tomorrow morning? He said, I, you know, Mr. Goodman, you, you delay every single case. You're always asking for recesses. I'll give you till tomorrow morning, but you better be ready to go then. And uh, I went back to my office, and of course, we knew the flight because uh, they were waiting for him. Uh, we knew the airline, of course, because uh, uh, they testified about that. And I contacted the the airline, and I knew the name of the pilot uh, after five minutes, and I called the pilot at home, and I asked him whether he would come to Las Vegas and testify as to what he saw. Not telling him what he saw, but asking whether he would testify as to what he saw. I said, surely. So he came down. I met with him that morning before we went to court. He gets on the witness stand, identifies himself. And I said, tell the judge uh, uh, what you just told me this morning for the first time. And uh, before I, I even had an opportunity to really discuss this with him, he said, there was this black guy who was in a Cadillac right on the curb. And we got into the bus, and we saw three fat cops come up. They didn't call them redneck cops. Fat cops going up to the car, opening the door, grabbing this fella, throwing him on the ground, putting cuffs behind his back. All three pulled their guns and pointed at his head. They reached in and took the keys. They went back to the trunk. They took out a briefcase. They opened it up, and they arrested him. And Manny said, see, I told you, Mr. Gibbon. I said, are you telling me that uh, what you just said is the honest to God's truth? They said, sir, it was like Miami Vice. He said, I have never seen a citizen abused the way your client has been abused. And with that, the judge suppressed the evidence. And a person who was dealing uh, with heroin and a heroin transaction was uh, uh found to be able to rely on the Constitution of the United States, on the fact that prosecutors can't lie and get away with it. And it was a beautiful thing as far as I'm concerned. And you know the end of the story, Manny, Manny walked out of court a free man. That's not the end of the story. The end of the story is that the three fat redneck cops didn't even have a letter put in their file about how they lied and they were able to do it against some other citizen who wasn't fortunate enough to remember that there was a van 
with a pilot and a flight crew who saw what happened when they were abused. You know, it's such a great story on the one hand, but such a sad story for that very reason. But I, I love hearing stories like that because most of us, myself included, grow up thinking that the world is a very black and white place, that prosecutors, cops, and law enforcement agents are the good guys, and the guys that are out committing crimes are the bad guys. And the truth is a lot more nuanced than that. And uh, there's case after case where I've seen police and prosecutors overtly cheat to get the result that they desire. And until this latest round of uh, of Trump indictments, where at least half the country now views the, uh, law enforcement like that to some extent, I don't think most people had a uh, any understanding of that. All right, let me ask you about the Trump situation before we uh, run out of time. You had had some dealings with uh, Donald Trump. You write about this a little bit in uh, your book. He obviously had uh, some property in Las Vegas and uh, was, you know, very well known all over the country. You have been pretty critical of Donald Trump as a presidential candidate and as a president, both on style and substance. I'm curious as to your take on the racketeering indictment of Trump and the other uh, 18 defendants in this Georgia case specifically. What do you think of it? I think they're going to be, I think the government's going to be punished, to be quite frank with you. I don't want to get into the politics of it. I like Donald Trump. Uh, Donald Trump uh, was out in Las Vegas and uh, he was opening up Trump Towers out here. And I had the privilege of meeting him uh, and I asked him to do me a favor. I didn't know him from Adam uh, to come down and look at some land that the city had acquired uh, that. I wanted his opinion as to how we could develop it. And he uh, readily came down and he gave me some terrific ideas. He said, because we had a railroad track running right through the middle of the land, he said, consider the railroad track your river. And I said, what do you mean? He said, consider uh, not an impediment, but your river and uh, develop uh, both sides. uh, And uh, you'll have uh, something very, very significant. He said, I'd like to uh, build all my buildings there. And I said, well, Mr. Trump, the truth is I want eclectic buildings. I want each one to be different from the other one. And we basically shook hands and I thanked him very, very much. But I, uh, look, I'm not going to say whether he was a great president. Uh, he had a lot of great things happened during his presidency or whether he's a bad president. Uh, that's, you know, not for me to decide. I go into the voting booth and people don't even know around here whether I'm Republican, Democrat or nonpartisan uh uh, because I thought a mayor should be nonpartisan and be the mayor for all people without having to say, are they R or D? And should I do something which would be consistent with what they wanted? And uh, I, I think that the government, uh, and we'll talk about this at some later time, uh, I think they really blundered when they indicted 30 people here uh, with the expectation that about 28 of them were probably going to flip uh, and not want to face a RICO uh, sentence. Uh, and and try to get them to testify against the former president. Um, it's going to be unwieldy. Uh, the judge could do whatever they want to do. But uh, I have very strong feelings about this. Let's, uh, Frank, because you're my buddy, uh, let, let us uh, at some later time when we get closer and we see how this thing unfolds, get together again. And I'll, uh, I'll try to give you an idea as to how I think it's going. Be happy to do that. But in the meantime, I want to wish you and your beautiful wife 
uh, the very, very best of uh, everything because uh, there's nobody on uh, radio with a finer audience or, or is more incisive than you are. And it's always a pleasure speaking with you. Uh, Oscar, the pleasure is uh, all mine. I do recommend uh, the book, Being Oscar, From Mob Lawyer to Mayor of Las Vegas. There's some great stories in there about individual cases, but by far the best story is the story of uh, your life and uh, the remarkable adventure that it's been. Uh, Oscar Goodman, former mayor, current first man in Las Vegas, where his wife, Carolyn, is doing a great job. Oscar, as per our deal, uh, your uh, bottle of Bombay Sapphire gin is on the way. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon, Frank. Take Thank care. Thank you, uh, Mayor Oscar Goodman. If uh, you want to uh, send me your feedback on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me an email. Uh, email me at frank.morano, that's M-O-R-A-N-O, at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com as well. If somebody sent you this podcast, please do a favor and uh, spread the wealth, share it around, and subscribe to it so you can get every edition of the Racket Report. Until the next time we meet in cyberspace, I'll see you on the radio.